Okay, so welcome to today's episode of InfoSec Journeys. Ashley and I are really delighted today to be joined by Jason Shockey. Thank you for taking the time to speak to us. Jason, you have a very interesting insight and background in the information security landscape. Um, we're going to talk about your US military career, how you transitioned into civilian life, and we've got a lot of stuff to talk around your kind of skills, experiences and community contributions as well. Uh, before we pick you apart, before we peel it open and dive right in, Jason, why don't I throw it over to you? Give us a bit of background. Tell us who you are uh, and what you're all about. Yes, hello. Thanks for having me. It's uh, great to be here. I'm previously a CISO at a publicly traded company in the New York City area. I'm the founder of MyCyberPath.com, and I spent 20 years active duty in the United States Marine Corps conducting cyberspace operations, cyber risk management, and incident response. Nice one. That's fantastic. So um, what made you get into cybersecurity? So I think it was a, a curiosity. Um, during one of my first field events, we have to set up and tear down the networks every time we go to the field. Um, I received a, a notification to monitor, do not block. And that piqued my interest. Um, this was you know, more than 20 years ago. Who sent that to us and, and why did they send that? And who actually is in our network and we don't know about because we set these networks up to be defensible and to know who's using them. And usually we want us to use them only. So it was really a curiosity. And then that started down the path of, okay, how can I better defend my networks? How can I better defend the applications that we're using? And then from there, just layered on different pieces of computer network attack, or offensive security, and then layering intelligence with that and then pulling all of those three together to actually conduct cyberspace operations. So when, when you say uh, monitor, do not block, for those who might not be familiar with the terminology, bad guys in the network, don't block him, but keep your eyes on him. Is that what it means? That's right. Somebody was watching them, and that's what piqued my interest, because we couldn't see it, or at least sections of us weren't allowed to know um, who was there or what was there. Um, so yeah, it was. it's basically somebody's there. We're going to go ahead and watch to see what happens. So. And, and 20 years ago, what did cybersecurity look like? like? Was it complicated, difficult, or quite simple? I think it was simple because it was, well, simple compared to how they, they paced the networks. So the networks weren't as complex as they are now or converged. So the defense was more, you know, it, it kind of matched what were the network that was in place. So simple for the time, but definitely not simple as far as the defense itself to actually be defensible. Yeah, uh, that, 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 is, that is interesting. So do you think that the, the, the tools were very immature back then? There wasn't that many um, cybersecurity tool sets. That, you know, now, now there's a tool for everything and there's a new vendor every single day. Um, what was the vendor landscape like or what, what did you have available? Was it just grow your own at, at that point? No, we, we, had, uh, we had things available. We had uh, commercial off-the-shelf and government off-the-shelf items that we could use. So a lot of the tools that you might see today they might have been in a different name, but I think the sensing of the network or the instrumentation of the network is much better now, uh, or not better, just more mature. So how everything is actually sensed is much uh, mature now than it was back then. So we might be looking in an area, like let's say you're, you're looking at a canvas that's uh, eight and a half by 11 or something like that, or a small piece of paper. And maybe back then we only had the tools that could look at maybe one square inch of that. Now we can look at the entire paper. So 
It's, it's the way that you can actually identify to then protect, detect, respond, and recover from intrusions. So I've often, I've often wondered that about military, um, the, the, the insights that a third party platform could get from being within inside the network, it, you know, it, it almost seems like the perfect crime. Develop a cybersecurity application system technology, get everyone to buy it and make it so valuable that the US military implements it as well. And you've got your back door into the network. Um, how, how kind of risk averse are the military when they onboard new technologies? If you onboard like an EDR solution or a, or a SIEM solution and stuff like that, how, what kind of testing do these, these platforms have to go through to make sure that they're not like the Israelis or the Chinese or whatever trying to break into the environment? Yeah, it's pretty rigorous now. So the, the controls that the acquisition commands have put in place is much different than, than before. So uh, the vetting and the validation of what's actually being run in those applications and in those uh, systems and, and how the hardware is configured is much different than before. Um, there's always the chance, you know, nothing is, is 100% defensible or 100% uh, protected. So there are ways to get around that, but it's very seldom that that would happen, especially with what we have in place uh, today. Hmm. It's fascinating, isn't it? You wonder what goes on. So 20 years in the US Marine Corps, um, I mean, you must have seen so many things during your time there, both um, inside and outside of, of the InfoSec space then. How, how, does it, how did it start when you joined the Marine Corps? How did it start? Where did you kind of uh, break into the pathway of InfoSec? What was the kind of, um, what did it look like in terms of the education you needed, the, the skills you needed and stuff like that? How did that kind of trigger for you? Yeah, for, so I majored in chemistry. So when I went into the Marine Corps in 1999, I needed something technical or wanted to do something technical. Um, so out of the available MOSs, as they call them, the military occupational specialties, those are the jobs that you can get in the Marine Corps. Um, when you're going through officer basic training, you get to pick your top three. So I picked, I, I chose IT because it was technical and it had the longest uh, ground school in the Marine Corps at the time. It was six months. So you learn all about telecommunications and then you go out and do your job. So um, I was very interested in doing a technical job and along two, two lanes. One, how could I benefit from being in the Marine Corps for 20 years doing a specific job? And then also, how could I give back to the Marine Corps along those you know, 20 years? So how could we have a mutual benefit as I go through my 20 year career? And IT was that because I knew eventually I would have to get out and what would most benefit me on the end of this, um, while I could still uh, make a huge impact uh, within the Marine Corps and IT was that specialty. So when we went in, it was, um, you know, everything that you can think, think of, voice, video and data and all of the tools and the, the, the processes and the procedures to put those in place anywhere in the world, um, in, in the middle of nowhere, um, how can you allow people to talk? So that was uh, very intriguing, very interesting over 20 years. So it's build them up, tear them down. So there's a lot of repetition, which was actually good because each time you configure a network when you stand it up, um, something, you might miss something. So, well, there's, there's, a, there's a hole in, in, in the wall. There's a hole in, in the gate that somebody could probably get through. Um, so it's uh, the, the fences are layered in a way that even if the holes are there, um, which well, back to our original point, nothing is 100% secure. So even if the holes are there, we still have operational security that we follow to make sure that we're guarded, even in our own networks. 
Yeah, that's cool. When, so a lot of people talk about the defense in depth, or um, you know, protect. You know, have multiple layers of protection to uh, to help if one one fails. Um, but I think when we, we spoke um, a week ago about um, actually breaking up information in different mediums. Um, you know, how, how, how does that work when you're tearing up networks and building networks in remote, uh, remote locations? Like, how do you, how do you do that? Yeah, I think it's, you know, across the voice video and data, if you just break it up or, you know, abstract it up to, to that level, how can someone move, um, a piece of information to another person in another location, whether that be in the next room or, you know, across continents. So if you pull it back a little bit to say, what available means do we have? Because a lot of things wouldn't work, uh, or uh, I should restate that. As we brought up the network, certain services would be available. So maybe voice only was available. That would be the first thing that we wanted to get up, like a radio. And then we'd go to phones, and then we'd set up the network, because things take longer to set up. Um, so the users, or our customers, as I call them, or thought of them, would be asking us, hey, I need to talk to this unit that's you know 10 miles away. How can I do that? Well, then that brought me to this, this way of thinking of, okay, if they can't talk, uh, if they can't send an email, which they're used to, how else could they send that information? So layering it that way in my mind or, or stacking it out in my mind that way, I was better able to serve those users and customers by, you know, hey, have you tried this? You know, you can IM this, you can, you know, send a, a short message over the radio. It won't be, you know, full, you know, page length kind of document, but you can at least get the message across. Or you could just call them on the phone and talk to them and they can take notes. Yeah, that's interesting, yeah. isn't it? I think also, I guess as well, when you're standing up like new technology or new projects or implementing new solutions like that, mm -hmm. I guess knowing from your experience now, kind of present day within the business world, like how, how different is it in the environment where if you want to bring a new idea or a new method or you've got a new new solution to something in modern day business, like for me, I'm speaking like a loaded question this because personally, there's quite a lot of red tape and roadblocks and um, kind of processes you have to go through. In the military, is it more of a, yeah, we, we need this, you can execute straight away and it's easier to deliver? How, what are the kind of synergies between um, that process in the military versus like a civilian life? Yeah, I think on both sides, um, public and private, there's the red tape, like you like you mentioned. Getting through that is an art and a science at the same time. While those new ideas are going through to get approved or get official approval to buy a new tool or to adopt a new uh, kind of official process through a policy, I think there's a lot of innovation that you can do while you're waiting for those things to occur. And then, you know, what if, what if those never get approved? Then you're still stuck in the same situation so that constant um, movement to achieve the momentum to get to a, a better place. And just to unpack that a little bit where innovate inside what you already have. So take the services, kind of back to uh, what I was explaining earlier, when the, our customers will come to us when we're you know, two days onto the ground, the full network is not gonna be set up yet, but we'll have pieces of the network. And you know, we even had motorcycles where we could send messages. It was uh, really, how can I get this message to the other person, period, go do it. So we really had to find ways to get innovative to say, okay, I know that this will, uh, solution is gonna be here in a couple of months. What can I do now that might be able to come close to that type of solution? And then use the services that are already in your network to do that somehow. 
Um, so we had a lot of really, I mean, young people that were like focusing on the problem to get these done that would come up with, with uh, solutions like that, where they they use the, the existing tools in alternate ways to really help the command out. And you can do that, at, you know, within um, a business as well. So in, in the, the previous business that I was in, there are func there's functionality within the services that people might not even know exist, but they're still there. And it might be a radio button they haven't turned on yet or a technology that they just haven't explored yet. Yeah, I know everybody's busy during their day, but if they looked at it, they would be able to use much more than maybe the 10 or 20% that they're getting out of the applications that they have. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, maximizing the benefit of existing investments right. is something which is so key, especially in the business that I'm in. We, we, we quite often buy something, a new technology, and we realize, oh, we actually bought something that will do that six yeah. months ago, but no one ever, ever looked at that particular feature, what have you. Tons of overlap. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so I, I guess, you know, when I look at, you know, your your 20-year career in the in the military and i look mm -hmm. at the job titles i'm 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 really i never knew this and whether this my plain ignorance i don't know um but i look at the job roles and you know senior information technology project manager vp of cybersecurity strategy head of information technology department director of cybersecurity operation center mm -hmm. uh, I mean, you can see that obviously the, the natural increase in your progression in, in with roles and responsibilities and and ultimately uh landing with um you know, director of cybersecurity operations, director, deputy director of infrastructure. Like these, these sound like job titles you would go and get in in New York City or whatever. So, so I, I never knew. I thought it was all just you know kind of all based around rank and stuff. But you actually have these kind of VP, SVP kind of titles which map back into 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 business life as well. That's right. So this is for anybody that's any person that's in the military that's transitioning out. So first, let me walk that back one step. So in the military, they're very good across the world. They're very good at progressing the leaders in a systematic way. So that's why you see that natural progression. It's built into the system where you, of course, you must perform or they're going to you know, tell you to go home. Um, so as you move through the leadership um, principles, as you go through your daily job, you're going to get those you know, corollary titles that you would see out in the civilian world. So the titles that you're reading there are the ones that were actually, they're, they're um, worded in a way that someone on the outside would be able to pick that up. And that's actually how I, um, you know, provided, provided the narrative to my CISO position, where it was, here are the, the types of the functions that I did. So this is, this is back to the point where this is for anybody transitioning out of the military. When you perform a certain job, they're gonna give you a title. And that title really doesn't mean much. What you do is much more important than that. So when I was in charge of you know, the, the, the scores of developers at, at, in an organization, it was, okay, you might be called the, the head of um, uh, the, the capabilities department. Well, what does that mean? Well, actually you're developing software, you're writing code. So you were actually the, and if you work directly for the commander of the unit, and you're in a vice president position. I mean, that, that title VP is, you know, spread all, across the industry is much different in many organizations. But if you're working for the CEO or the commander of the unit, that kind of makes you a vice president. And then, of course, the functions underneath that and your results have to match what you're calling yourself or else don't put it on your resume. So 
when people go to get out of the military, they really have to tune exactly the words that they're putting. Don't just put the title that they gave you in the military. Choose something that you see in a job description um, that has the same types of functions. And then you can honestly change and genuinely change the title of that from, because if I tell somebody that I was a telecommunications officer in the Marine Corps, they're, they're not going to know what that is. They're going to be like, oh, God, that's really nice. Thanks for serving. And then they go about their day. No, no, no. I want a job. I, I need to be a CISO. This is what I'm good at, you know, identifying and um, cyber risk. So, Do you, um, you know, we'll want to touch upon this in a, in a bit also about my cyber path, but do you find that people transitioning from um, active duty into civilian life, do, do they find it difficult? They might. Um, I think many do. Uh, mm. What I did uh, right around the 10 year mark, so across the 20 year career, at about 2009, I started getting serious about getting my CISSP certification. And what that allowed me to do was take the cert and actually apply it. So I like to say, you know, get the cert on Sunday, apply it in your job on Monday. So don't just get a certification to get a certification. Get a certification that is, is attuned to what you want to do and how it applies directly to your job. Because if you're not gonna use the cert, there's no sense in getting the certification. Certifications are great. They show a level of technical comp uh, competence, but you have to be able to actually apply that. How do you explain what you're doing to somebody who's non-technical? Can you explain to somebody who is technical what you're doing? Um, so I think people have a lot of trouble getting out of the military because they wanna stay with, well, this is how I speak. They need to be able to comport to the new language and the new vernacular that the the the, the private industry has um, and if they don't do that then they won't be as successful as they could be they'll still be able to find a job but there's a lot more potential in those people the active duty transitioning military members that can be found if they get in tune with okay how do i speak to these people how can i get across what i know into this organization and to these people i, I think as well um cyber security tends to be an industry, but I guess I'm biased because I'm also in the industry. Um, but I, I certainly, from my experience, having worked for an American company um, with a large uh, employee base within the cybersecurity world coming from the US military, uh, veterans, I think it, it feels like cybersecurity is almost like a natural fit when you're dealing with incident, the frameworks that we use in the, on the business side kind of map to maybe... I, I'm completely talking way outside of my knowledge here, but like what you would use in combat in terms of identify, protect, detect, respond, recover, that same kind of terminology methodology, is that how you like approach a target, for example, or a campaign, or, or, you know, how you uh, assess like, you know, what you're working on within the military world. It, it feels like it maps over. And is there that like comfort zone of, of kind of that framework that people come and work in? 100%. So the frameworks that exist, um, like we were talking earlier, there's, there's a manual for everything in the military. There's a manual on how to be the best leader. There's a manual on how to actually approach a target, how to like target system analysis. How do you actually go through and identify the, the aim points within a target system? So it's ingrained in all of us uh, that are in the military that, that come out where it is a, it's almost a perfect match where security and cybersecurity kind of fit directly into what we do on a daily basis. Because when you go to work and you're active duty military or just in the military, you're going on to base. The first thing that happens when you get to the gate is to check who you are. 
So that's identity access management. I mean, who's this person getting on my base? Take that and put that in a virtual world. Well, who's this person trying to get into my network? We have to have something that checks that. At, at, a, at a base, it's a person. You know, in, in, in a network, it's a machine. It's code that checks that and validates those things. So it's almost this, and then when you just conduct your, your, your daily job, let's say you're out in the field, you want standoff distance, so there's the layering. You wanna make sure that only your people are in there. Then you also have to plan for, okay, what if something happens and somebody does get in here? What do we do then? Well, there's your response and recover across the five core elements of, or the core functions of the NIST cybersecurity framework. So there's direct applicability. You're 100% correct that, that military people are very, they might not know it. Some that, I mean, that are in cybersecurity know it for sure, but other just people in the military are very attuned to, um, based on their functions of their daily jobs to security and how cybersecurity functions. Hmm. I always find as well, uh, an area I'm particularly fascinated with uh, in InfoSec is, is cyber threat intelligence. Mm -hmm. And I see lots of different takes on cyber threat intel and how, you know, you look at strategic intel, tactical, operational intel, etc. Um, again, I guess, you know, thinking out loud terminology, which probably resonates within the military as well, or probably came from the military, no doubt. Um, uh, and, and it's just adopted in, in uh, InfoSec world. Um, I always, I, again, I hark back to when I worked at Bank of America, like a large proportion of the cyber threat intelligence leadership team were, were veterans and, and that kind of framework was, it was so fascinating just to be in and around, um, to hear about, you know, the kinds of things that they, they worked on and how it worked within the military and stuff. I think it's um, uh, uh, amazing really that we can bring that into the real world business life. How do you think that, um, like industry train, if you look at the industry training, the CompTIA's of the world, the CISP you mentioned, uh, SANS, etc. Mm -hmm. How well do you think that gears up people, both in the military and also within day-to-day -day business? Do you think um, if you had SANS qualifications in on the outside world, that that would apply within uh, it, within the military and vice versa? Yes, I think they're they're exactly the same. And for this reason, because technology is technology. The same networks that we use in the, in the military out in the, in the middle of the desert are the same networks that we use, that we're using right now, the same types of machines. Tech is tech. So the certifications and the good certifications, and you just listed some good ones right there that we actually have in the pathways, the, those are usable for people that they're, they're not just gonna get a cert and then it goes away from them. The things that they learn in those certs and how they apply those, to, to my point earlier, is that if they don't apply those again and again and again and hone that uh, skill set, then it'll be lost, um, just like speaking a language. So if you don't continually train and continually, um, well, training is one thing. Training is in, a, in you know, like a lab environment. When you actually apply that in your daily job, so maybe the th cyber threat intelligence at your previous employer, they, they had training and it's uh, honed through apprenticeship for years and then when they get to a place like the Cyber Threat Intel Center at the previous company, they're able to function at a very high level and taking those frameworks that they had on how to gather intelligence or collect intelligence and then use the intelligence. So then they can you know, gather the operational intelligence um, that you mentioned earlier to use that in a specific way. So can the Intel drive ops? So if you have the correct Intel, it drives an optimized op. So in order to get that intel, you have to have that, that, those certifications and 
you know, that, that gives them the stamp of, yes, this person can come in the room. Now let's train them on how to actually do their job. So I think they're, it, it, the certifications are, are welcome and they're excellent, even the ones that you, you mentioned. How, so you've done some really interesting um, certifications, um, adversary threat modeling and emulation, um, uh, and, and, some, and some other some other other ones as well. So joint network attack course, you know, it's things that you probably wouldn't see in outside of the military. But how? What is the course material quality like in you know in in your experience compared to what you get on the outside world? Like you know, as you said, technology is technology, but of course you're using technology that civilians just either one don't have access to yet or two is you know far it's so expensive that you're not going to see a normal corporation buying um so what, what what's your what's that what was your training like in the military your cybersecurity training like no it was it was top notch so it was a couple um or a coupling of the civilian certifications that i did on my own and then the some of the courses that you mentioned there those were the the in-house kind of military specific ones the instructors at the military schools are excellent. So just like, you know, we were, you, you see the natural progression in my resume that, that says, okay, he did this. And then he, you know, now he's in charge of hundred people. Now he's in charge of 150 people. Now it's 200, 2000, whatever the numbers are, there's that natural progression. The same thing occurs as you start going through uh, the military schools. The military is excellent at doing just that taking somebody and then walking them through the other the person has to respond. I mean, you're going to get out of it what you put into it. And I put a lot into it because I wanted to know because I knew that I would have to do the job. So I focused on, okay, what am I actually going to have to do? Um, so I think the, the training is no different than you would get on the outside. It's how we apply it. And then with what intelligence, because a, a big difference is, I mean, you're just not going to civilian corporations, are just not going to have the same type of intelligence that a government agency is going to have. They just don't have the, I mean, if, if a government agency is focused on intelligence, obviously they're going to have more intelligence, more focused intelligence. Um, so I think that, I think the, the training in both areas are top notch. It's just in, in the difference is the mindset and how they apply it. Yeah, I, I think that definitely resonates. Um, so I guess le leading into, um, the other organization which you're involved in, which you which you founded, my my cyber path. It's all around. Like, was this aimed at helping um, veterans transition into civilian life, or is it more broader than that for for anyone in infosec in general? How does it how does it work? Tell us a bit about it. Yeah. So first, it's you know we we think that everybody has a place in cybersecurity. So these pathways are for anybody interested in a cybersecurity career. Um, the the way it works is that. MyCyberPath.com provides trait-based cybersecurity career pathways for people to enter the cybersecurity industry and then level up throughout their career. So it matches somebody's personality to a work role in our Listo framework, which is leadership, intelligence, supporting technology and operations, and then gives them that personalized pathway to take them from their starting point all the way to cybersecurity mastery. And there are three verticals that people will go through across those four areas. So the three verticals are ready, set, and go, or foundation, specialization, and actualization. And then the four areas that we focused on um, come from the blind spot that's in the cybersecurity industry right now. So the certifications and education are huge and critical elements for anybody looking to be or achieve mastery in cybersecurity. 
But the other two elements, the training and the uh, experience are key also, like we were touching on earlier. Go train in a, a specific a clean environment and then go apply it the next day. And that will build, from, uh, build on your, your certification and your education. So when all four of those things are together, it gives somebody the best chance of career success and deeper job satisfaction because they're matched from their personality to a specific work role. So in, in, I guess though, I, one of the challenges I see people, and whether this is a, an actual challenge or not, or whether it's just kind of like perceived is people often say there's a barrier to entry to get into information security. And I, I'm on the fence yeah. really. I don't know whether there is or there isn't, but uh, you know, I, no doubt there are pockets of the industry that are elitist and, and don't kind of welcome newcomers. I don't know. I've, I've yet to see it. I'll be honest with you. My personal experience is InfoSec is a friendly place to be, but I, I feel like people feel they need to be super technical to get into InfoSec. They need to be able to reverse engineer malware. They need to be able to hack into a web server. They need to be, you know, uh, a, a military grade pen tester, whatever. But what is it when people are starting out? What, what kind of what are the kind of skills that can get them in the door in order to get onto this training and awareness and education and stuff that's important? Do you think? What are the kind of key transferables that you you commonly see? Yeah. So that's why we focused. You know, at my cyber path, it's the personality. What what kind of habits does a person have to actually do the job day in and day out? When you're staring at a screen for 14 hours straight, nothing's working. What kind of person will still sit there for another hour and then get up and do it again the next day? That's a specific type of personality. So I think the barriers that, are, that exist are only in the individual person's mind. They, I don't think they really exist because like you, I found that I mean, I, I'm, I'm a very nice person. I'll teach anybody. I'm people that reach out to me on LinkedIn. I'll I'll, I'll, I'll connect with them and I'll, you know, do my best to guide them through whatever they're going through as far as an entry level job or how to level up if they're 10, 15 years in, in the industry. So I think those barriers are in people's minds where they think they have to code, like to your points, you don't have to know how to code. There's area, there are areas of cybersecurity where you do need to code. And if you are matched to that and you have the passion for that, you'll eventually be able to figure out how to code. You'll learn how to do that. But if you don't have the passion to code, then obviously go do something else in cybersecurity. So cybersecurity is such a vast field. You can kind of make uh, corollaries to the medical uh, field where it's so vast. If you say you're a doctor, well, okay, doctor of what? You know, I mean, there are so many little slices and specializations. You can kind of do the same thing with, um, with cybersecurity where you can be in cybersecurity without being technical or knowing how to code. And that's why you know, those pathways help people see that. I mean, that's the intent of this is the, the, it starts with someone's personality. That doesn't take anything into account. It doesn't ask anybody if they can code. It doesn't ask anybody for a certification. It just asks them, hey, how, how, what kind of person are you across the big five uh, model? And then it says, okay, you're best suited for this job. And then you can go about uh, achieving cybersecurity mastery. But the good thing about the, the site is that when they go there, they're already interested in cybersecurity. So that's a good thing. And then they get matched and then they get their pathway. So we really think it's going to help. I mean, the, the original intent was to help anybody that was interested in it, because I know it's such a hot field. And, you know, there are numbers that range all the way up to three and a half million unfilled jobs by the end of next year. But this is to help anybody for generations, how they can actually get into the cybersecurity industry 
and then walk through those steps, kind of like in the military, what the military did for me, and I'm very grateful for that, showing me how this is supposed to occur, how it's supposed to be done, and then you could just take it and run with it. So somebody can complete these pathways. We, we want to get to them as early as possible, but somebody can complete these pathways if they're, um, if they're good enough, I mean, if they're passionate enough about it, in maybe two or three years, or they could you know, get some certifications and get a job within 45 days. It really depends on the individual. And back to the original question, I think the barriers are in people's minds and they need to get over themselves and get out of their own way in order to get those jobs. I think it's quite interesting. And one, one of my personal experiences is, well, what am I actually good at? You know, I'm good at multiple different things. I like this, I like that. And actually, like you, I think what's really interesting is having, is fine tuning those pathways down to say, this is the, what you're good at and you should exploit this area. I, I, I do feel that there's, you know, there's definitely big areas of individuals who, 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 who struggle to, to find their feet. They jump into a role thinking, oh, that's what I want to do. And then either don't like it and just stay there because it pays to, it's paying the bills or, or, or don't know where, how to get to that next level or how to move to another role because they don't have exposure. So, you know, so you have cyber pathways, which I think is fantastic. And, it, you know, I think it will help. It would definitely will help people uh, find their find their way. But like, so how do how does someone just you know, look at other areas of cybersecurity without getting those jobs? Is there other types of material out there or, you know, books or podcast? which is a podcast right here. But is there, is, is there other ways to there's other ways to um, help someone branch out? Uh, so this would be a, a new person that's looking to, to get into say they're say they're a SOC analyst now, but realistically they want they want to be uh, they want to work in GRC. Well, they they actually they're a SOC analyst, but they don't they don't even know what they want to do after. They're just currently working in front of a seam because that's what someone told them to do because that was the easiest way to get into the industry. I think all experiences can build into the new ones or your past experiences definitely help. So that's thought we can stay on that example, the SOC analyst. Um, if they wanted to find out what else was out there, um, that kind of lends it to one of the articles that I wrote uh, recently was there are too many work role titles and it's confusing to everybody. That's why I made the Listo framework where it was, there are only 12 titles. All of the titles that I've seen across the NIST NICE framework, anything you see in CyberSeq or anything on LinkedIn, Indeed, Monster, those work role titles all fall under that list of framework. And then people were able to say, oh yeah, okay, offensive security, that sounds interesting. Why don't I go train for that or, or get a job in that? And then there's the analyst portion where you can be human focused or you can be technology focused. So for the SOC analyst, maybe they're a tech focused cybersecurity analyst. And then they see, oh, offensive cybersecurity, that sounds very interesting. I wanna go work for the NSA or the CIA or GCHQ or whatever organization there is there the list of framework and is is freely available and the reason I made that was because I was confused over 20 years of okay what is what is that you know somebody would come into the team onto the team and say I do this and I'm like okay you know you first you'll see their work role title and and then you're trying to figure out okay where am I going to put this person to, to orchestrate and synchronize the teams as we try to get results I really had to find out exactly what the where they came from and where they might go and that's where those 12 pathways came out those unique pathways so um something that you mentioned earlier was and and we've had this mentioned a few times 
is the cybersecurity skill gap. And I, I see a lot of content recently on this on, on LinkedIn. And um, I don't believe that there is a skill gap. Um, I, th I think there's a lot of people um, in the world who can do these jobs. But unfortunately, the empl people employers um, want people that have five, 10 years experience because they don't want, they don't, unfortunately, they either A, don't have the, the time or the budget to take someone fresh in the industry and build them up and then let them leave to take another role. Um, but, you know, that's my personal perception. Like, what, what do you see working, you know, transitioning from the military to private life and helping people in the industry? Like, do you, do you actually see a skills gap shortage or is there an or, or is there a, a employer mentality issue which is which is amplifying um a, a skills gap shortage yeah i think uh i like to think of a coin so on one side is the hiring managers who write certain job descriptions that might not match exactly you know it doesn't lend itself to entry and entry level people getting those jobs so the five to ten years experience with the cissp Okay, that, that's, that's, that's probably not an entry level applicant. And then on the entry level side, it's a human talent problem instead of, or just, you know, ex expanding the human talent pool. So not necessarily a skills gap, there's plenty of training out there and it's, it's great training. We talked about some of the certifications before. It was, ex it, they are excellent. That's why they're listed in the pathways. That's why I have them and many people use them. But the people that have those barriers, so, the two sides of the coin are the hiring managers need to um, write the job descriptions in a way that allow entry and en en entry level people to get the jobs, but expect that they're not going to have all the skills that you're looking for. Now, that might not help the company and there's a business case to not do that. And I understand that. So I think it's not a skills gap to your point, but and I agree with you, it's more the human talent that is coming, that is trying to get the skills. Um, so they can get the certifications and they can get the education. What they won't necessarily have is the experience. Um, so yeah, finding a spot where they can get that experience, whether it's through competitions or uh, clubs or just doing freelance work um, might be the best way to help close that gap. What, what do you think about, it feels like it's a, I've started the question already and it sounds loaded, but what do you think about the terminology then that's used when you're, when you're, when these kind of talent hiring managers are, are writing job descriptions? I, personally, I feel like the, the barriers to entry that we kind of spoke about a few minutes ago about people feeling like they need to be technical and all the rest of it. Like I, I've seen quite a lot of entry level roles and actually non-technical roles, you talk about, you know, security risk or stuff like that. You don't necessarily have to be technical hands-on about. But I think the wording in the industry, when firstly, is quite masculine. We talk about like penetration testing and exploiting and, you know, all, all of that. All of these kind of masculine sounding words that may, maybe might deter, you know, some of the female population. But then also, moreover, to be fair, probably will deter people who either don't understand it or it's it's it just sounds technical all of the time mm. do you know what i mean for me you talk about vulnerability management and things like that you think well you know you're not talking about risk you're talking about like techie terms all of a sudden i wonder how we could soften that as an industry a little bit or do we do we even need to i don't know whether we were at risk of dumbing it down for people I'm not sure yeah that's a good point uh you know 
turns do turn people away for sure. So I can imagine changing the language might help. And that, that is something that I hadn't heard before, but that's a very good idea. Um, it might, I'm not sure how that would ripple through the industry and how it would take, but it's, it's better than what we have now. Yeah. We do have a lot of uh, unfilled jobs and people not getting cybersecurity jobs. So what would entice people to, to get these jobs and, and how can we help both the people and the businesses? Yeah, for me, I think it's, it's fair. if you look on LinkedIn, you'll see, I see tons of people, very talented people, you know, technical penetration, so penetration testers and, you know, very, very technical, able individuals who cannot get roles because there is a, uh, unfortunately, there's a unrealistic expectation from, from these people um, to fill. And I, I, I wish there was a, there was no way for someone to, you know, and I think this is probably the job of either external recruitment agencies or specialist agencies to say, actually, what you're looking for is someone with two to three years experience, not 10 years experience. And, and we joked about this in one of the, one of our other episodes where, you know, there was a job advert for 10 years experience in Kubernetes and it didn't, or was it 14 years experience in Kubernetes and it didn't even exist 14 years ago. So, you know, there's, 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 there's a lot of these really unrealistic job, job, um, job specifications which the hr filters instantly are dismissing fantastic people so what do you like so you know your your organization is all about getting people into organizations so what's your top tips for a job seeker to get past that hr filter and shine in an interview yeah so two two items one is for the first is you're going to have to play a little bit of buzzword bingo meaning you're going to have to put terms phrases and keywords that the ai filters are going to screen for. The other piece is networking, meaning find out who else uh, is in the company, join, you know, chapters of uh, certific certification bodies like ISACA, ISC squared, SANS, you know, go to conferences and just find out exactly who is working in those specific areas to then kind of promote yourself through the networking. But you also have to have a, a resume and the experience that actually backs up the job that you actually want. So there's a, a lot of wishful thinking uh, for people and everybody does it, including myself, that you really have to get down to kind of first principles on what, like, who am I? What can I actually do? And can I get this job? And if you think you can, then start doing the buzzwords, get through the AI filter and then do some heavy networking to get those jobs. Yeah, I think, I think a lot as well. It's really good advice. I think that will resonate with a lot of people. And I, I also feel that we, we speak a lot on this podcast about like imposter syndrome, which seems to be yes. something which is discussed quite a lot in within this industry. In fact, I don't know why, or maybe I should look into this, but my boss was even sending me like YouTube links about imposter syndrome. So maybe he thinks I suffer from it. Um, <laughs> um, but I, um, it, it's quite interesting that uh, you, you kind of touched on it, Ash, just before. You you see these like superstar rock star people within the industry kind of struggling to get roles. I see it on Twitter all the time. I follow loads of people on Twitter who I'm like, these guys are amazing. I, I've seen, I'm not even joking, I've seen a guy, Doggy G, on Twitter who is uh, a bug bounty uh, millionaire. He, he's earned, um, I think he's knocking on two million now. He's, he's managed to earn himself a million quid a year through finding vulnerabilities in major organizations. 
mm-hmm. he was he, he he was struggling to get a role. He's he's in one now, fortunately, but it took a while. And you think this is someone who's like you know super pro, and everyone must look at. I think what happens is everyone looks at those kind of celebrities, the ones with big follow accounts, and you know have got like a voice within the landscape, and they think, oh god, if they can't get a job, then surely I can't get a job, and they don't even bother. And then that barrier kind of gets into their head, yeah. where you think actually. I don't know Doggy G, but I'm like, I'll do him a disservice here. But maybe he's like really bespoke and really niche and he's exceptional at what he does. But maybe the business is looking for something a little bit broader and then you could fill that gap. But you've got to think like that to get over yourself. And I see the phrase you use quite rightly, Jason, is get out of your own way yeah. and, and get your, you know, get yourself out there. So, uh, but unfortunately, the world, the social media world we live in, I think people just kind of see the celebrities, see the followers on Twitter and they think, oh, this guy must be amazing. And if they can't mm-hmm. achieve it, then nor can I. Yeah. Yeah. It's much easier to watch somebody be successful than try to be successful yourself. That's why people, you know, are in awe of like professional athletes, sports athletes. Um, so, you know, I think people, the AI filters are, are a, I think they're a problem because Mm. both of your points or all of our points where the point that we made earlier where people are getting screened that are spectacular people they're critical thinkers and they're problem solvers that's somebody that you would want on the team and if they can code or and if they you know are are good at uh, grc within cybersecurity or good at it audit you want to pick those people up they're very you would that's a welcome addition to your team and i think the filters are just wiping those people away they won't even get to the, the screeners to actually look for, hey, would this person be a good fit for our culture? I think the, the, the automation is really preventing a lot of people from getting jobs. Yeah, I, I totally agree. How do we solve it? I, well, I'm, yeah. Yeah, I'm keen to explore with you as well. I mean, throughout, you, you're obviously a technical person um, and have developed so many skills within the industry, but not more so than your leadership capabilities as well. Um, and you know, out, outside of infosec, that is obviously a transferable skill in, in most yes. other uh, situations and stuff. What what are the kind of keys to su- success in leading large groups of people, especially uh, within this landscape? Do you, it's a fast moving landscape. This industry. Yeah. What are the kind of tips for success about being a strong leader? Yeah, uh, I learned definitely learned this in, in the Marine Corps. It's almost when you come out of the Marine Corps, you'll have a a, a master's or a PhD in leadership. Because uh, you're thrust into the leadership positions, whether you like it or not, and you're going to sink or you're going to swim. So the best advice that I got um, throughout my, my decades of being around great leaders was set the environment for the people on your, in your company or in your team to do their very best and then get out of the way. Because if you start asking questions or start you know, quite, um, asking too many um, too many questions when they're trying to get things done, they're not actually doing the work. So set the environment, hear everybody's perspectives, choose the best choice. It might be an 80% solution, but you're gonna aggressively and 100% carry that out. And that's a much better plan than waiting for a perfect plan to, to execute the next week. So set the environment for people to actually, the leader should be able to take in all of the ideas from the team members. You hire them for a reason, so listen to them. If I hired a GRC expert, I'm not going to try to be the GRC expert. That's why I hired that person. So listen to what that person says, you know, assimilate it, put, put it into the orchestrate it and synchronize it on the path towards whatever results you're trying to get for the quarter, whatever results you're trying to get for the year. 
but take into account what everybody says to then make the best decision. Yeah, very cool. I think that. Yeah, I quite like that. I just, I just typed that out because I, I felt, I felt like I've hit her in that. That, someone said this to me before, but you yeah, know, it's um, it is very interesting to set the environment and then let let everyone um do their own job. I, I was thinking about this yesterday in terms of, um, uh, I I saw a quote um about not being the smartest person in the room, and it really resonated with me because you know I did I I spoke to someone I spoke to a customer the other day, mm-hmm. and I thought. I've done a terrible job there. You know, it was about a topic that I had I had some experience in, but I hadn't really approached it in the past twelve months. So you know, I was calling on really old knowledge. But but I, I think one of the one of the problems that people in cybersecurity have is wanting to be the smartest person in every single situation, which just is not possible. You cannot be a cloud expert, a, a forensic expert, a CM analyst, a, a, a GRC expert. It's just impossible. So I think um, one one of the things that you know I've I've learned over the past twelve months is accepting when you're not an expert at something and re- and realizing that you don't know that topic. So go find someone that does. And like you said earlier, networking with people. I find networking is so so important. Um, so yeah, I, I think that is really important as a leader is looking at the, your individuals and saying, okay, these people are experts in that, these people are experts in that, and these people are experts in in this. But also as a cybersecurity professional, is is knowing how to do that as well. Even if you're not a leader, is is realizing who who can you surround around, who can you surround with that that can either elevate yourself or you can give tasks to to say. I need to know how this topic works. Either teach me the topic or come on the call and do this for me. Um, so, yeah, I think that that is really important. Um, uh, sorry, but I do have a question before it goes out of my head. Is one of the things we've discussed a lot in this podcast is personal brand. Like, how, how, how do you find, how do you, how can someone build a personal brand? Because you have a, your LinkedIn profile is very well put together. So how do you, how do you build that? I think it's just doing it looking at it and then you know taking the the third person if somebody else was to read something about you let's say you had to explain something to your to your grandchildren or uh, explain to somebody on the street who you are and what you do would they be able to get a picture of just that how can you paint yourself just to a complete stranger and then they walk away from your two minute elevator pitch or 30 second elevator pitch and have an idea of what you're all about and then take that and then write it. Writing is the hard part, you know, because it's it's uh, formed thinking. It's it's how can I take what's in my head and what I do and actually list it out for somebody to really understand what that is. Um, so that's you know the buzzword bingo thing that we use for to getting jobs. It's also with people as well. What words resonate with people the most to get across the message for your personal brand? So I'm a cyber leader or a leader, you could say. So what things show that? Well, if you're in charge of a thousand people, we'll put that in there. But then there's also the intangibles as well. Like to your point earlier, leading up to the question was finding the person that has the information, recognizing in yourself that you don't know and being okay with that, that's being humble. So I've been, I've humbled myself so many times over the past 21 years of leader, leadership, by go finding the, the, the lowest ranking person, it didn't matter to me. If they had the information, I would go and sit and talk to them for 30 minutes, 40 minutes to understand what they know and then apply it. 
And then if I needed another question, I would be able to point, you know, now I know better that person to better lead that person and the team. So if anybody has any questions, they can go to that expert. So I think it's um, being humble is very, very important for all people, especially leaders. I think that's good advice. I, I guess, Jason, you've given us a, a superb insight into what it's been like uh, during your uh, US military training, your career within InfoSec and the insights uh, and how you transitioned into um, bit normal business life. Um, and also what I quite like is the, is the kind of synergies between how well-structured the military is versus how that can be brought into the into the um, into the business world as well to develop security maturity you're at the level you're at the c-suite level already i guess mm -hmm. just to close out then tell us what's next for you how do you stay motivated do you feel like you've you've achieved it you've you've cracked infosec or is there more to come from your goals and aspirations yeah, yeah i think you know achieving this level it's it, it's been a very long journey. Um, I enjoy the rigor. Um, da Vinci has a quote that says, you know, constant rigor. Um, and that always resonates with me. It always resonated with me, even when I started in the Marine Corps. The Marine Corps is very, it's a very hard life, it, but it's a good life. So as you go through that, you just enjoy the rigors of that. Uh, constantly changing kind of dynamic and, or dynamic landscape. Things are constantly changing. And in cybersecurity, you get that as well. So even if you're at, a senior level, things are always going to change. New tools are going to come out. New tactics, techniques, and procedures are going to, um, on both sides, are going to occur. So how can you stay uh, curious about those things to be a lifelong learner and then be innovative? So that, that hints at, you know, elements of mastery, meaning I'm, I'm just so, you know, I can give back to the community, which I'm doing with mycyberpath.com, you know, helping people get on those pathways. But on my personal side, I'm just maintaining that curiosity to say, well, what's next? I don't know. Let's let's go meet that challenge. So I think it's deep inside me that I really want to just find out more. And it's not necessarily find out about a specific thing. It's just find out more. And then there's an ellipsis there. Okay, what's next? So I think that drives me a lot. Awesome. Well, I'm excited to to keep watching your your contributions to the to the cybersecurity community. I think you're such uh, a prominent player, um, someone with a fascinating history and insight. And I really do appreciate you you taking the time out to share your journey with us today. Thank you. Yeah, yeah thank, thank you very much. much. Pleasure to be here.